hello everybody and welcome to our latest edition of Infection Control Matters. I'm Brett Mitchell and today I'm joined by Daniela Karen Favoska. Daniela is an infection prevention control nurse at Alfred Health in Melbourne and she's been working in that role since uh, 2014. Prior to that, uh, Daniela was a haematology and bone marrow transplant nurse. She has a particular interest in intravascular device quality improvement and safety in healthcare delivery. And Daniela also has a master in um, public health. And uh, the reason that I wanted to get Daniela on today was just to talk about a new article that she's got. But first, uh, welcome, Daniela. Hi, Brett. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. Look, we're excited to, to have you on to talk about a paper that you've recently had published in the Journal of Hospital Infection. And the um, title of that paper, for those listening, and we'll put this as usual on our podcast website, a link to the paper. Uh, the title of this paper is called Development and Piloting of a Prevention Assessment and Response Tool for Healthcare-Associated Staphylococcus aureus Bacteremia uh, or Bloodstream Infection, the SAB part study. And this study is Adelphi method, which we're going to hear a little bit more about in, in a moment. So, Danielle, before we get into the, to the study itself, tell us why, why did you do this piece of work? Thanks, Brett. Um, so, as you know, Staph aureus are bacteria that some people can carry harmlessly on their skin or their nasal cavities, but we do worry when um, this bacteria enters other parts of the body and leads to infection, uh, particularly in the bloodstream where it can make people very unwell. And um, healthcare interventions and procedures can cause these um, Staph aureus bloodstream infections or, or SABs, as we'll refer to them moving forward. Um, so, preventing SABs in a hospital setting is really important, and all Australian hospitals perform um, surveillance on SAB infections. Um, our experience with performing this surveillance is that there's a, a wide variety of factors that can contribute to their development. Um, for some patients, there are inherent risk factors um, or you know um, circumstances resulting from outside of the hospital and the healthcare system's control. Um, whereas other infections are very clearly related to clinical practices, which which can be amended. So mm. in this sense, we um, we felt that not all SABs are equally preventable um, in a healthcare setting, and we wanted to see if there was a way to uh, build this into the way we perform SAB surveillance because, uh, as we know, surveillance shouldn't be about data collection only. It's um, supposed to be information for action. You know, and that, that concept of some of these are preventable and some of them are not and they occur in different parts of the you know, community or healthcare settings. And that's important, isn't it? Because we, you know, as hospitals, we get reported on these types of infection rates. And so we really want to have a bit of a grip on uh, what, what's within our control as well. That's right. And so it's it's around uh, moving uh, this surveillance forward and, and looking at how we can actually start to bring those SAB rates down. What else can we do? Because we've implemented all these bundles. We've been doing the same thing now for a lot of us for about 10 years or so, mm. 15 years. Um, so this is around progressing this and, and trying it trying to look at it from a different angle. Yeah, that's important. You know, we've seen some great reductions in SAB, uh, SAB-C rates over um, a number of years now, but I guess it's now getting to the point of what else can we do? So, so that leads you to your study. And what was the, what was the aim of, uh, of your study or the purpose of it? 
Yes, yeah, so we um, we started out with the question uh, around can we transform the existing investigation and follow-up process of, of SABs uh, so that our efforts could be focused on addressing the most preventable cases. So we, we broke this down into several objectives. So we wanted to define modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors for SAB um, in hospitals. We wanted to develop a tool to classify and grade these SABs by how preventable they were. Um, and then we wanted to standardise the investigation response to SABs um, using these classifications. So, mm. uh, And we thought it was important to achieve this by consulting with others who perform SAB surveillance um, to make sure the tool has some utility for a broad range of healthcare settings and circumstances. So that leads nicely on to, to sort of what I was thinking about asking you next, and that's what did you do? How did you how did you develop this tool? Um, it was quite a bit of work, actually. Um, it's remarkable looking through my notes actually to see how far we've come with this project. Mm. We we had a number of different phases of the study, including literature review and, and tool development and application. So uh, we needed to complete a literature review in the first instance, looking at things like the risk factors for sub development, um, definitions of modifiable risk and preventable harm, and whether there were any other tools or, or similar work out there that had been done to classify healthcare-associated infections by the, the degree to which they are preventable. Um, and this is an interesting area in the literature which is starting to grow now, mm. um, particularly in the area of um, central line-associated bloodstream infection is probably the area that's had the most attention. Mm. Um, we also reviewed the Delphi technique to make sure it was the most appropriate a method for our project. Um, and so this, this literature review led us to draft a tool um, uh, where we incorporated definitions of preventable harm. And we actually started out with four of them to begin with. Um, so we went with highly preventable, probably preventable, possibly preventable and not preventable. Mm. Um, and lots of clinical examples under each category and some very basic response actions. Um, and then, of course, we had to uh, draft a study protocol and seek ethics approval um, from our institution. And so once once we had all of our um, ducks in a row, we essentially trialled the tool on a very small number of patients um, retrospectively that had acquired SAB in our, um, in our hospital, um, just to allow us to refine the tool further and make sure that, you know, from the outset, it makes a little bit of sense uh, to begin with. It could work in practice, yeah. Yeah, and then yeah. we're ready to implement the Delphi project. So the Delphi project, um, that's a, an interesting way to, to go forward. So for those listening who aren't familiar with that sort of Delphi-style approach, what does it involve just you know, broadly? What, what does that involve? Yeah, so um, I think one of the best things about working in infection prevention is that we're always learning and exploring. And, and it was exciting to use a, a, a methodology that hasn't been frequently used in our field, but potentially has quite a lot to offer. So when I looked at this at the time in 2019, I could only find 25 other studies that utilised a Delphi technique to address hospital infection and control questions um, in the last 30 years. So in short, Delphi is a method for establishing consensus opinion among subjects experts. So it was developed by the RAND group in the 50s and it's been used across a lot of fields, um, including the sciences. And it's not a research method to create new knowledge, but rather it's around harnessing existing expertise and evidence um, to address knowledge gaps or set priorities um, by establishing consensus in a very uh, systematic and, and structured way. And that's sort of what you did because, you know, you started off with that literature review. So mm -hmm. you understood what the what the risk factors were based on the evidence broadly and you, you sort of trial it and then you put it to experts and go, is this going to work? Is that is that the sort of approach you've done then? 
Precisely. And um, it this method assumes that well, not assumes, but it acknowledges that the the experts themselves through clinical experience, through their own research, through their own expertise, um, that in itself is is forms part of the scientific basis to be able to address these types of questions. Mm. So um, sometimes there are questions in fields where you can't necessarily do a case control study or a a particular, you know, Mm. uh, the really traditional research methods. And so this is a way of actually harnessing existing knowledge and expertise and actually um, answering questions um, Mm. that might not otherwise be able to answer. So you've developed the tool. So did the literature, developed the tool, got these experts together, and mm-hmm. and 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 so when you get them together for this Delphi style approach, what does that what does that look like? So um, the researchers are responsible for identifying a, a group of experts in the field, and and they remain anonymous to each other, and they're asked to complete a series of uh, sequential surveys, and um, the feedback from each survey they complete, which has qualitative and and quant quantitative um, elements is used to refine and, and confirm your consensus statements until there's a, a convergence and opinion on all items. Mm-hmm. And that can take sort of three or four rounds in in total. Um, and I think the point of keeping the experts anonymous to each other is that it avoids that sort of influence of, of dominant personalities and peer pressure and um, mm-hmm. things that can happen in a normal consensus um, mm-hmm. uh, setting. So, um, and, and this there's an element of, of ranking responses as well, which can actually help um, add a bit more of a, a quantitative um, element to this as well. Yeah. So say, for example, um, the first round, you, you pose the questions to, mm-hmm. to the um, panel and um, you mm-hmm. get their feedback and then you, you refine that tool a little bit more and you, mm-hmm. you refine those questions. You put it back to them again. Do you, do you for the second round, do you provide the feedback to, the, to those involved to say this is what the first round uh, responses were absolutely so, and and even on the outset, we um the one of the biggest tasks was actually establishing this panel of experts because we had to make sure we came up with a list of people who had established leadership or publication mm. in the field of healthcare associated surveillance, um, especially with SABs, and that they were rep- representative of the different um, types of healthcare settings mm. and and cities and regions and and states. So. We, we then emailed out these um, surveys and we collected demographic information as well. But the first survey was quite different to, to the, the other surveys because it included um, open-ended questions on the study concept and the study um, and the tool design. Mm-hmm. And so it invited lots of open-ended and um, unrestricted responses. And that was to make sure that we were actually uh, gauging and addressing the content in the tool appropriately according to the group's feedback. Yeah. Whereas the um, subsequent surveys actually um, asked the experts to rank their agreement or disagreement on a nine-point Likert scale. And so even though they could add some qualitative com- comments with that, the, the ranking actually helped us see where um, opinions lay. And, and I think just to make it really clear, there's there's quite a number of points on the tool and, and mm-hmm. the, the experts had to rank their agreement or disagreement with every single statement on that tool. So mm-hmm. um, the, no assumptions were made about um, any element of the tool. Yeah, yeah. So um, every time that re, uh, feedback was received, um, I was the principal researcher, so I would pull these um, scores to develop whether consensus agreement or disagreement had been reached um, and then um, take it forward from there. So we would share this, um, share these results with the experts after each round yep. and 
in the final round, we also showed them um, where their position lay in response to, with regard to the rest of the group. So I think that was one of the more interesting elements of it as well. So they could actually see where the group's opinion lay and, and where their own opinion was. And that was when we got final um, final consensus. Oh, consensus. Yes, I've participated in Delphi studies before and I found that that's a really fascinating part to see where you sit your opinion sits relative to others. Um, mm. It's always it's always a useful process. So if you're ever invited to participate in these types of things, I would encourage people to do it because it gets you to think about where, where your opinions sit relative to your peers as well and, and think about other points of view. So, um, so that was really good. So you've got this tool. Let's skip forward. And you've gone through all these rounds and you've got the tool. What does what were the sort of, um, I guess, headline results what was the what was the end product that you you found from doing this piece of work yeah and and i guess that because there were a number of elements to this and i mean the, the delphi process itself once it was completed i was quite pleased to see that we had actually achieved sort of a consensus of between 80 and 100% for almost all elements of the tool mm. even though we'd set the threshold at um 70% and above so i think i was quite reassured to see that we had I think met what we um, wanted to achieve, yeah. and we we ended up with a tool that had been that's essentially designed to be used by those who are investigating healthcare associated SABs, um, and it outlines the criteria that need to be thoroughly reviewed in a case investigation and provides three different definitions or categories of SAB preventability, and mm -hmm. under each there's a list of examples to help the user apply the definition. So we. Um, in, in the in the highest tier category, we have highly preventable SABs. So those are those, um, these are SABs that where the infection can be clearly attributed to a non-compliance with infection prevention practices. Mm -hmm. um, and we found this was um, highly consistent with the the literature on, on preventable harm out there. So it's, it's around compliance with evidence-based practice. Yeah. And importantly, we came up with a consensus definition of modifiable risk, which is actually in the tool itself. And one of the things that you might notice about the tool is that it goes over, you know, essentially two pages. And, and even though on the outset how we wanted to keep it to one and be as succinct as possible, mm. we found that that wasn't going to work based on the expert feedback around actually being able to to define um, some of these really key criteria so that the tool can um, be applied in a really standardised way. Yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting one that actually because you know. We're all involved in lots of things when it comes to infection control, and I'm sure listeners can mm. can recognize uh, appreciate this that these things sometimes are not uh, black and white, and um, everyone always likes things on a on a nice little small one page or uh, on mm -hmm. the back of, a, of something that can be stuck into an IB badge. But um, sometimes these things are a bit more complicated than that. So it sounds like you really did try to minimize, try and streamline it as much as you could, but in the end, um, you know. Yeah, every to um, every statement needed to be there, and that's certainly what we found. Yeah. And and certainly um, with how uh, heterogeneous sab infections can be, it was really hard to be too simplistic um, mm. because there's a lot of different um, elements that we needed to account for. So um, I think the highly preventable sab category was probably the the least difficult to um, describe and achieve, yeah. uh, whereas the others were 
quite challenging and, and needed a lot of development. So the the possibly preventable SABs are those where um, the patient has received healthcare interventions that breach their skin integrity or mucous membranes, but mm. the clinical practices related to that intervention appear to be in line with recommendations. So I think we we recognise we can't observe every moment of hand hygiene or aseptic technique, and mm. we recognise that the presence of modifiable risk factors um, means a review still needs to take place. And and the third category was the factors um, Mm -hmm. not actionable? That's right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so um, this is where the source of infection isn't identifiable or or more importantly, where it's not amenable to to local or system changes. So the Mm -hmm. the key events that would meet this definition are those where non-modifiable risk factors clearly contributed to the development of the SAB. And um, the experts felt it was still important to communicate with the treating teams for these cases in case any more information could be made available. But the mm. the level of a response recommended by the tool is nowhere near as um, thorough um, as for the, the first two categories yeah. where there's a, a big emphasis on the um, person completing the surveillance, uh, which is often the infection prevention team, to very clearly specify the source and um, the contributing factors and really put an, an eff- emphasis on the um, the treating teams to implement local local change. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the non-actionable category, I, there's a couple of things I'm sure people relate to there, the, the um, presence of, of the SAB on, on admission, of course, um, but things like neutropenic patients um, <laughs> and patient behaviour um, were, were also included as, as some of those examples. So uh, I think that's a really, really well done on getting this down to a flow diagram where it's really breaking those um, categories into three categories and then really stepping out some of the actions that you could take um, to help uh, prevent this from happening again. Um, Are you using this tool in your, your hospital? So in recent months, we received approval from our um, hospital's infection prevention committee to commence routinely using this tool for our sub-surveillance. So this is quite new, new for us. Um, yeah. And to do this effectively, we've um, we've had to come up with a standardised case investigation tool um, because we need to make sure that our investigation aligns with the um, parameters that need to be reviewed. Um, mm. And we've also had to um, revise our signal event letters um, yeah. as well. So moving forward, we'll be reporting our SAB events using the tools classification to our infection prevention committee. And I'm really looking forward to um, over time seeing some of the trends um, because it will give us a new angle to, to see which cases had modifiable risk factors mm. and, and what we're actually doing. Yeah, and that then might inform future bits of this work you hope it'll you know, to extend this a bit further and and evaluate it down the track a bit more or yeah and it's a big question actually yeah. um thinking about this um moving forward i think the next six to 12 months of local application will really inform what needs to happen next but mm. i think um there are a couple of very quick key questions that need to be answered i think the first one would be the inter-rater reliability of the tool mm. um so uh, for example, the the tool al- allows quite a bit of user discretion because of you know how heterogeneous mm. SABs are. So we need to know that it's being applied relatively consistently by different users, um, so that we can actually compare the results between them, um, including different hospitals. So yeah. if we found that there were some inconsistencies that needed to be clarified, I can envision that maybe some small refinements might need to be made to the tool. Yeah. Um, and I think the other really big question is, does it actually make a difference to clinical outcomes? Um, yeah. I think initially we might 
only be able to measure that at a, a local level, um, mm. looking at trends, um, whether we're looking at the proportion of cases that, you know, meet the highly impossibly preventable category and seeing what happens to them over time, or maybe even looking at our overall SAB rates, um, mm. although that that's, that's quite big picture. And obviously, um, our SAB rates are also still dependent on the... Um, the current surveillance definitions as well so yeah 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 a few a few other factors in there that's for, that's for sure mm-hmm. um look it's been um great to hear from you and, and and this piece of work and um thank you for your uh for your time today in sharing this with us uh i hope that this is something that others might find uh, useful to think about in their own practice as well absolutely and certainly would invite anyone to contact me if um if they think they might want to collaborate on a project involving this tool moving forward or if they have any questions uh, around the application of the tool, we're certainly um, happy to be engaged. It's, um, I think it's really important that we come back to um, our bread and butter infection prevention work because obviously we're doing so much around COVID. Um, we can't forget all the other infections that, that potentially place our patients at risk. Yeah, that's absolutely right. It might have actually, might have been, was this a nice refreshing change to have to talk about something other than COVID for, for a period of time? Absolutely. It's, um, it took quite a bit to, to get back into this headspace, actually, and I, I think I uh, certainly welcomed it. Yeah, good on you. Thanks so much, Danielle. We really appreciate your time. Thank you, Brett. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening to the latest edition of Infection Control Matters. See you soon. Bye-bye.